amazing grace, your unfathomable grace. God, the grace that you poured out onto us when we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. God, when we were far from you, just as we read while we were yet sinners, when we were rebelling against you and saying that we didn't need you, God, you came personally in Jesus 2,000 years ago so that you could demonstrate your great love for us. God, today we declare it by singing, this is amazing grace, saying that you conquered sin and hell and death, and now you wear the victor's crown. God, we declare that your love for us is so deep. How wide, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, God, and we just declare that together today in worship. God, now that we've prepared our hearts, we invite you to speak in and through your word. You're welcome in this place, Jesus, to say whatever you want to anyone that you want. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Well, welcome again to Bayview Glen. I know that Becky already welcomed you, but uh, welcome from me. My name is Lucas Cooper. If you don't know who I am, I'm the lead pastor here. We're thrilled that you carved out some time to spend with us uh, this Sunday morning to worship Jesus and to hear from him. We're going to start this morning with some statistics. And because if I say start with some statistics a bunch of times, I'm going to get my tongue tied. I'm just going to call them stats because it, I, I, would, I would struggle through that because it's like she sells seashells by the seashore. We could have a disaster on our hands. So uh, we're going to start with some stats. 2011. The Evangelical Fellowship of Canada's Youth and Young Adult Ministry Roundtable commissioned a study, and they interviewed over 2,000 Canadians between, 18, between the ages of 18 and 34 that grew up in a Christian home and grew up going to church regularly. And of those 2,000 plus that they interviewed that grew up going to church regularly and grew up in a Christian home, uh, 30% of those attended church as adults. I'm going to say that again. 2,034 that this study polled, 2,034 individuals that grew up in church, grew up in a Christian home, and when they get into adulthood between the ages of 18 and 34, it didn't take that long now, between the ages of 18 and 34, only 30% of them still attended church. 45% of them said that they attended church sporadically. That means Christmas and Easter. 35% of them never attended at all. And of those who never attended at all, 75% of them now said that they were totally atheist or non-religious. They self-identified that way. The study was published under the title Hemorrhaging Faith because the evangelical church across North America, and yes, even here in Canada, is hemorrhaging people, especially young people. And the researchers, thank God, when they interviewed over 2,000 Canadian young adults between 18 and 34 that had walked away from church, even though they grew up in a Christian home, even though they grew up attending church regularly, they interviewed them and they asked a follow-up question, and I'm so glad that they did, and it was a really easy, simple question, and it was, why? Why? Why would you walk away? Why would you abdicate the faith? Why did you become atheist? Why did you say, I'm not religious? Why did you just stop going to church altogether, even though that you grew up going to church every single Sunday? And for some of us, we might have some assumptions as to what those reasons might be, but I'm going to read you the four reasons that those over 2,000 young adults gave for walking away from church and walking away from the faith. Here are those reasons. Number one, I walked away from church because I never had a real personal experience with God. 
Number two, I walked away from church because my church is hypocritical. Number three, I walked away from church, walked away from the faith because the church is more concerned with morality than helping me experience God. Number four, I walked away because my parents only went out of obligation, so I went out of obligation. So now I was no longer obligated, I just stopped going to church. My parents didn't have any spiritual vitality of their own, they just did it out of chore or out of duty, so I stopped going. Now, these reasons might surprise you. Because none of those young people, note this, none of those young people blame society for walking away from church. None of them blame liberal politicians. None of them blame the new sex ed curriculum in Ontario. None of them blame the media. None of them blamed any of that. Here's what they said. They said, the church is full of hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. They attend out of obligation and they only want to modify my behavior rather than helping me meet God. Why would I go? So they walked away from church. They walked away from the faith. I want you to know that this doesn't stop with young people. Stats show that uh, the Canadian church or Christians in Canada, that number is growing by a fraction of a percent every year. It has grown by a fraction of a percent every year for the last 10 years. But the increase of Christians now, tune in, the increase of Christians is not uh, increasing commensurate with the overall population growth. We should have more Christians than we have in Canada, but the population is growing like crazy and the church is growing just a little bit. Put it this way, over the past 10 years, Christianity has lost nearly 10% of the market share to atheism and those that identify as non-religious. And I use that term market share, just I know it's a little bit, some of you, that's a very crass term, it's a business term, just helps us understand it. Businessmen and women, if you lost 10% of the market share, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. We're losing people, the church is losing people to atheism and to being non-religious at all. In short, the Canadian evangelical church and the Western evangelical church in general are hemorrhaging people. And it's my opinion that the hemorrhaging is just a symptom. Just like blood tells your body that it's been cut, it's been lacerated, it's got a wound, Christians leaving the faith, people that claim to be Christians that are leaving the faith, tells us that the church too has a wound. And that wound is called a radical misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. That wound is a misunderstanding of the message of Jesus. That wound is a warped perspective of the gospel itself and the nature of Jesus' invitation to follow him. In other words, people are leaving the church because they don't get what the Bible says. And the church is bleeding. Listen to me. It's bleeding our kids. It's bleeding our friends and family. It's bleeding our spouses because we don't understand what Jesus really invited us to participate in and respond to. And we've got all these kinds of, you know, different ways that we want to understand the gospel, but it's not the true message of the kingdom. One way is we, we understand the gospel as the gospel of morality. The gospel of morality. Tim Keller calls it therapeutic moralistic deism. Essentially, here's what this means. I believe in God. I believe God's good. So I feel guilty for the bad things I've done. And in order to feel better, I do good things. I try to make sure I do more good things than bad things to put more good things on this side of the scale so it outweighs the bad things in order to make me feel better. I know I'm busted. I know I'm broke. I know God's good and I've done bad things. And so I do good things for conscience therapy. It's the gospel of moralism. 
Or we, we teach the gospel of prosperity, not here, but there's other people that would say that the, this is the gospel of prosperity. In other words, if you believe enough, if you pray enough, if you have enough faith, God will bless you. And people are teaching it out there, and you see it on TV, you hear it on the radio, and you hear it in churches everywhere, and it's not the true gospel. Can I just come over here and tell you what I think about it just real quick? It's heresy, and it's embarrassment to the message of Jesus. Okay, back to the gospel of practicality. It's a different gospel that we believe. It's not the gospel Jesus taught. Here's the gospel of practicality. You've got a great life, now add Jesus to it and it'll get even better. Your family's good, add a little Jesus. Your marriage is good, add a little Jesus. Your finances are good, add a little Jesus and it will improve like crazy. So then you get pastors out there that talk about six ways to a better sex life or four biblical principles for financial freedom or eight steps to your best life now and the Bible does offer practical advice that works but it's not the gospel. It's not the message of Jesus. It's not the the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the good news about grace. And at some point, those of us who have maybe believed these things or staked our life on these things, we look up here on the screen and we go, yeah, I do good stuff. And it probably outweighs the bad stuff I do, but I'm still not sure I've inherited eternal life. Or maybe I'm prospering in this life. Better yet, you, be, you may not be prospering in this life. And I'm, and I'm trying to believe and I'm trying to have faith and I'm trying to pray. And maybe even maybe I'm prospering in this life. But eternally, I don't know where I'm headed, to be quite frank with you. Or you look up here on the screen and say, it's the gospel of practicality. Like Jesus works, biblical principles work. And, and I'm trying to put them into practice, but it's just not working for me. Or maybe it is working for you. And there's still something in your heart that's lurking in the back of your mind and in the depths of your soul that says, I'm not sure where I'm going when I die. And so the gospel of morality doesn't work and the gospel of practicality doesn't work and the gospel of prosperity doesn't work. They are false notions about who Jesus is and what he came to do. They don't engender spiritual vitality, only religious obligation. They don't produce worship, only pride. They don't grow us as Christ-exalting lovers and followers of God. They cause us to abandon our so-called faith in Jesus that really wasn't a faith in Jesus in the first place because we had faith in a Jesus that never really existed and didn't really teach the things that we're believing up here on the screen so the church is hemorrhaging people because that stuff doesn't work that's why the church is hemorrhaging people it's not because we don't have cool lights it's hemorrhaging people because we haven't taught the gospel and in matthew chapter 19 it's great because jesus has a conversation with a man who believed those gospels He believed that's how he remedied his broken relationship with God. He believed it was about prosperity. He believed it was about practicality. God has principles for me that work. He believed that it was about his own morality. And Jesus, for this young man, completely deconstructs those notions and gets right to the heart of what the gospel of the kingdom truly is. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to let Jesus explode those false notions of the gospel and then clarify exactly what the kingdom calls us to. But before we read it, before you turn there, I want to challenge you with something. I'll just put a challenge before you. And if you have a little bit of courage this morning, if you're brave this morning, then you'll accept my challenge. Some of us, many of us, who have been in the church a long time, who maybe said, you know what, I said yes to Jesus when I was a kid, or I said yes to Jesus 10 years ago, or look, I've been doing this a long time, and, and you know, I came from a, you know, I came in a Christian home, and, I, and I've been doing this for a long time. What we think when we hear that word gospel, 
When we hear that word good news about Jesus, when we hear that word grace of God, we think to ourselves, I've got that. What I need to talk about now is Christian living and walking with Jesus and praying and doing the right stuff and, and, and not doing the wrong stuff. That, that's what I need to deep. It's what I want. I want deep. Here's what deep means. I talk about something until you don't understand it, and then I, and the baby goes, oh, that's deep. That's really deep. That's what deep is, okay? So, so here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to invite you and challenge you to listen to the gospel for the first time. Because sometimes we think the gospel is for sinners, the gospel is for pagans, the gospel is for atheists. I'm a Christian, I'm a God-fearer, I'm a religious person, so this isn't for me. So what I'm going to do is listen close, and then I'm going to tweet the podcast link later. I'm going to email it to my friend who's a pagan or an atheist or an unbeliever so that they can hear the gospel. But get this, the man in our story was a God-fearing religious person. He was just like you. He knew doctrine, theology. He attended church. He had prayed a prayer. Maybe he even prayed a lot. But listen really closely now. He had no part in the kingdom of God. He had no part in the kingdom of God. So here's my prayer today. And it's, it's a humble prayer. And to be honest with you, I think it's a pretty courageous prayer. That God would melt one heart of stone. One. That somebody who walked in this room today who maybe thought they were a Christian, maybe somebody who's been attending church for a long time, maybe somebody who's done all the things that this young man did, we'll get to it in a minute, maybe somebody who is prospering in life and things are going well and you've got the world by the tail and you're doing all the right stuff and you're jumping through all the hoops and you're obeying, obeying all the commandments, but there's still something in your heart that says, I don't know where I'm going when I die. That God would melt the heart of stone and you would say yes to Jesus for the very first time. You may have thought you did a long time ago. But I hope today that you go, you know what? I don't know if I've ever fallen on the grace of God and trusted him alone for my salvation. That's my prayer. This, for lack of a better term, is the gospel for Christians. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. If you've got your Bibles, open them up with me. If not, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. The scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. I'll listen until I hear pages stop turning because I want you to be with me in the text. If you can get it in front of you. If not, like I said, it's up here on the screen. Matthew chapter 19. We'll start in verse 16. Matthew writes this. And behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Some of you who already know the gospel of grace, there's fire alarms going off already. What good deed must I do? Something's wrong there. Keep going. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Man said to him, which ones? Jesus said, don't, don't, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. That's not in the text, that's just me. All these I have kept, what do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
Let's start by understanding who this man is that comes to Jesus and asks this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew chapter 19, verse 22 tells us that he's young and rich. Luke's biography of Jesus tells us that this young man is a ruler. And some of you maybe have heard before that he was a spiritual ruler, he was a religious ruler. If you know the word Sanhedrin or Pharisee, that he would be a ruler of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Sanhedrins, that, that's not true because you had to be old in order to be a religious leader or a spiritual leader. So Matthew would not have identified him as young if he were a leader. Or if he were a leader, Matthew would not have identified him as young. So he was a leader in the marketplace. He was a civic leader. He was out there doing business, engaging with people, and he was a ruler or a leader in that way. So this rich young ruler or this rich young leader tells Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 that he has kept all of God's commandments since he was a little boy. So the other thing we know about this man is he's rich, he's young, he's a leader, and he's morally upright. He does all the right things. He, he prays, he goes to church, he tries to read the Bible to the best of his ability. And some of the ladies in the room are thinking, is he single? Does Matthew tell us if he's single? It's been 2,000 years. I don't think he's the marrying type anymore, but that's beside the point. He's got everything going for him. He's a rich, young, marketplace leader who is morally upright and is known in the community as being morally upright. He's obeyed all of God's commandments since he was a child. So if you believe the gospel of morality, he's doing great. He has money and youth and influence. So if you buy the gospel of prosperity, he's doing great. Everything in his life is on the upward swing. So if you believe the gospel of practicality, it's working. It's going great. And yet, our rich young, morally upright leader comes to Jesus and he asks him a question, how do I inherit eternal life? Listen close. You do not ask for something that you are sure that you already have. You understand? When he comes to Jesus, he knows his money won't save him. His influence isn't enough. His youth is going to fade. And his strict adherence to God's commandments is certainly not enough. There is still an ache in his soul. There's still something in the deepest part of who he is, whatever you call that deepest part, soul, spirit, heart, consciousness, whatever, something that's lurking inside that says, gosh, Everything is going well. Everything is going right. I'm doing all the right stuff. But he comes to Jesus and he goes, I just want to be sure. How do I inherit eternal life? He already knows intuitively that what he has is not going to save him. And I want to be straight with you. There is someone like that here today. Someone who feels, you know what, I, I've got a lot of material possessions in this world. And maybe you don't think to yourself, I, I think I can buy my way into heaven. I don't know that anybody really thinks that. If you think that, come talk to me. Most of us just kind of get distracted by wealth and riches. And so we don't think of the kingdom of God. And we don't think about eternity. We don't think about that longing. 
There's someone in here that's young or it's a marketplace leader and you've got the world by the tail and things are rolling, but there's still an ache, just like that rich young ruler. There is still an ache in your soul and there's still a question. I don't know if I'm going to inherit eternal life. Most likely, even more likely than that, there's someone in this room. Now look up at me here. Someone in this room and more than one that is trusting in morality to get you to heaven. You're trusting in the good things that you've done. You're thinking to yourself, I've obeyed all the commandments since I was a kid. Or I've obeyed most of them and God's kind of meeting me halfway on this deal. And that's how I'm going to get into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, there's still an ache in your soul. There's still a longing inside of you. There's still something that tells you it's not going to be enough. Listen to that voice. Because you know why? That voice is telling you the truth. It's not going to be enough. As I was talking about this uh, message with Amy yesterday, she asked me a, a great question. She said, look, the rich young ruler is trusting in his riches. She's, he's trusting in his leadership and his authority. He's trusting even maybe in his youth. Mo most importantly, he's trusting in his morality. So how do I know or how does a person know, how does one know that one is trusting in something that is going to fail? How do we know if we put our trust and faith in riches and authority and leadership and, and, and in morality to get us to heaven? How do we know if we believed one of those false gospels in general and for all of life or even those moments, these little moments in life? How do we know? Here's my answer. Look inside. Do the hard work of introspection. It takes a lot of courage, but do it. I would venture to guess that you would find, just like the rich young ruler, you're not sure if you've got eternal life. You're not totally positive where you're going to go when you die. You know intuitively that no matter how much you've got, it's not going to be enough. Riches, youth, prosperity, authority, especially morality, you know deep in your heart there, that isn't going to be enough. There's still an ache. There's still a longing. If you find that in your heart, it's because you're trusting in something that's not going to get you there. So if you feel that tension with me, if you feel that uncertainty in your heart, you don't have to nudge your neighbor and go, that's me. Don't do that. Just track with me here because you're going to find a friend in the rich young ruler. Verse 20, a rich young ruler reveals that, he, reveals that he isn't sure about his salvation either. He says to Jesus, look, I've kept all the commandments. What am I missing? What one more good deed do I need? He asks Jesus, what one thing do I lack? He knows it. He knows he's missing something. Now listen, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but I'm a pastor. I love the Bible, and I'm a seminary graduate. So when this guy asks Jesus, what one thing do I lack, I expect Jesus to respond a certain way. Some of you who know the Bible might expect the same thing from Jesus. This guy says, what one thing do I lack? What one thing do I need to do? You might expect Jesus to respond the same way I expect Jesus to respond. You don't need to do anything because it's A, not about you, and B, not about what you've done. God has already done it all, so you don't need to do anything. 
That's what I expect Jesus to say. But Jesus doesn't say that. Look down. Keep reading. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor. He gives him something else to do. This guy says, I've already done all these things. What one thing do I lack? Jesus said, okay, here's the one thing you lack. You want, it? You want to be perfect? You want to be whole? You want to be complete? You want to be good enough? Do this. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In other words, do you want to deserve heaven? Do you want to earn kingdom riches? Do you want to be perfect? Great. Do this. Sell everything. Give it away. Come follow me. Now, I want you to know that Jesus isn't really giving this man one more thing to do in order to inherit kingdom riches because Jesus knows, just like I do and just like many of you do, that there's nothing you can do to inherit or deserve eternal life. It's not about you doing anything. But Jesus commands this man to sell his possessions in order to prove to him that he wasn't nearly as perfect as he thought. He didn't really have it all together. He hadn't really checked all the boxes. He hadn't really obeyed all the things that he thought he obeyed since he was a kid. Because the first commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Second commandment says, have no other gods before me. If he doesn't want to sell his possessions, walk away and follow Jesus. Clearly, he hadn't got one and two down. Why, why move to six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, which is the commandments Jesus just listed for him? He's busted. He's revealed. He, he's... Jesus kind of pulls back the veil and says, let's look at who you really are. So Jesus desires this man to say, yeah, you know what? I guess I am missing something from my moral deck of cards here. <laughs> I guess I am a couple sandwiches short of a picnic in terms of kind of being good enough for God. If that's the requirement, I can't do that. Jesus uses this commandment to demonstrate this man's sin. But listen really closely because this is critical when it comes to the gospel for those who maybe think they know Jesus and really don't. This is really critical. We typically think of sin as badness. I know that's like a goofy word to use, but that's like the only word I could think of. Badness, right? Bad thoughts, bad actions, bad motivations, bad whatever. Just general badness. We think of sin, right? Rebellion against God. Badness. But here's what Jesus is saying to this man. Sin isn't just badness. Sin is also trusting in your own goodness. Now that's tough. Sin isn't just badness. It's not just rebellion. It's not just saying, okay, God, I know you said to do all these things and I'm not going to do it. I know you said don't do all of these things, but I'm going to do those things. This is sin. Sin is saying I'm good enough to earn God's favor. You know why? Because outright rebellion against God says, I don't need you. But saying I'm good enough to get into the kingdom also tells God, I don't need you. Listen close. I'm good enough to get in. I've done all the right stuff. Why would I need God? I've got it kind of taken care of in and of myself. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, I don't know why you're asking about one more good deed in order to make yourself whole and perfect and acceptable. There's only one who is good, and that's God. And it ain't you. You're not him. So back to Amy's question. I love it. How do we know if we're trusting in something other than Jesus, trusting in something other than God, and God alone for salvation? If you're taking notes, jot this down. If you've never owned your own badness, you're probably trusting in your own goodness. 
little litmus test for you. If you've never owned your own badness, here's what I mean by that. If you've never got to a point where you say, I am a sinner and I'm desperately in need of God's grace, I have nothing to offer God. I've done a lot of good stuff, but the Bible says my righteousness is like filthy rags before him. I may have had success in this world. I may still be youthful. I may still I may be a leader in the marketplace, but none of that impresses God. None of that's going to get me to the kingdom. I know I am a sinner, and I own that. If you've never really got to that place, it's probably an indicator that you're trusting in your own moral goodness, your own whatever, obedience to the commandments to get you to heaven, and it's not going to work. One of my favorite theologians, I was reading a book by him this week called The Kingdom of God, a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote this. Has Jesus put his finger on your particular sin? Just let that question sit for a minute. Has Jesus put his finger on your particular sin? If you cannot say yes, it means you've never met him, unquote. That's a hard truth. But don't come argue with me about it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, not me, okay? And, and he died in the 80s, so you can't really argue, him, argue with him anyway. But he says, if, has Jesus put his finger on your particular sin? If you can't say yes, it means you've never met him. It's a difficult truth, and it's hard to face. But if you've never seen yourself as a sinner who's desperately in need of a Savior, you've probably never really met him. If you've never arrived at a place where you know you have nothing to offer God, you know what? It's not, it, I know it's not encouraging this morning, but I really feel obligated to tell you the truth. If you've never got to that place, you've probably never really met him. You've probably never really met him. And you're probably trusting in your own goodness, your own morality, to get you into the kingdom. And we know that our rich young ruler finally understood this truth because Matthew tells us that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Now, it's interesting to me because the gospel of practicality or the gospel of morality or the gospel of prosperity would chase this guy down. When he walks away, he says he goes away sorrowful. He down face, down look, and I don't know if I want to do that. And so he just walks away, and he's sad because he knows he's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The gospel of practicality would chase him down and say, but wait, 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 wait. The gospel really works. God's commands really work for you. You know, you add a little Jesus, add a little God, and it'll notch you up. The gospel of prosperity track him down and say, I know you're doing great already, but you can do even better. The gospel of morality would track him down and say, well, you don't get it. I mean, you've done all these things, but there's maybe one or two other things you got to do, and it's just one or two, and it's not that big a deal. But does Jesus chase him down? No. He watches him walk away. You know why? Because the man did understand the gospel. He just rejected it. He knew exactly what the invitation of the kingdom was. Complete and total surrender, falling on the grace of God and leaving anything else that I might have trusted in before behind. No longer trusting in those things. So Jesus doesn't track him down. Jesus doesn't chase him down because he did understand the gospel. He just rejected it. He just didn't want any part of it. So Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I understand that so far our message hasn't been that funny today. I know there's not been a lot of jokes and stories. But this is like the funniest thing that Jesus could have said right here, by the way. In the original context 2,000 years ago, his listeners would have erupted into laughter and like slapping each other and crying and just laughing like crazy. Much like you're doing right now, of course. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The camel was the biggest animal in that area of the world. They didn't have a concept of an elephant or blue whale or anything. Bigger. The camel was the biggest, biggest animal, and it had humps. So Jesus says, picture this. Shove a camel through the eye of a needle. Everybody go, <laughs> That's how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, listen close. Jesus isn't saying that the rich can't enter the kingdom. He just says it's hard. So rich people don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. He just says it's hard. Why? Why is it hard? You know, I was, I was reading a study uh, recently, a sociological and psychological study, that I thought was fascinating. It kind of helps us get a glimpse as to why it might be difficult for someone who is rich in this world to enter the kingdom of God. Here's what the, the Harvard uh, Psychological Journal uh, kind of published and researched and published. They wanted to determine relative happiness. Who is happier, rich people or poor people? So they interviewed people who were kind of in the top echelon and had a lot, a lot of money, and they asked them, are you happy? And even how often are you happy? In your life, would you say you're happy a lot of times or not a lot of times, some of the time, all that stuff, okay? And they interviewed poor people, people who were below the poverty line. They asked them the exact same question. Now, we might expect that rich people would be happier than poor people, but that's not what the study says. The study showed that rich people and poor people were exactly the same in terms of happiness, relative happiness. They were happy just as often. They experienced just as much happiness in their life based on this interview. Interesting is they asked a follow-up question. I love follow-up questions. Again, love them. Asked a follow-up question. How often are you sad? It's different now. It's different. How often are you happy? How often are you sad? And poor people said, I'm sad a lot. I experience a lot of sadness in my life. And rich people said, you know what? I don't experience a lot of sadness in my life. You know why? Because when I feel sad, I can go buy a new pair of shoes or a TV or get a mani-pedi, and it just takes it right away. This is why it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Because when you feel that ache in your soul, when you feel that longing for something divine, you can go purchase something or go on a vacation to take that ache away. It's not bad to be rich. In fact, God has blessed you with that, and he's entrusted you with that money to move his kingdom forward. And that's great. That's awesome. He has not done that for me, so God bless you. That's awesome that he's done that for you. Maybe I'll write a book or something. I don't know. Do a reality show on my life. Something, something. But, but for those of you who, who, who are rich, not just those of us in this room. If you're sitting in this room right now, you're in the top 3% of the wealthiest people in the world. So everybody's rich. But even those who are rich by anybody's standards, it's awesome for you. It's great for you. It's not bad. What Jesus says is don't use that to take away that longing in your life for the eternal. There's a longing in your heart for something divine, and your riches are never going to get you there. So just don't trust them to do that. They can do what they're supposed to do. That's fine. But don't trust them for that. It's very, very difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's keep reading. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then 
can be saved. Here's what the disciples asked Jesus. They, they asked the exact same question we would ask. They say, okay, Jesus, we're confused now because this guy's got it all. I mean, God's clearly on his side. God's clearly blessing him. God's clearly showing him favor. He's young. He's rich. God's blessing his socks off. He's upwardly mobile. He's a leader in the marketplace. He's got influence. And most importantly, he's very well known as a religious and moral man. He's obeyed all of your commandments. So he kind of has everything. The gospel's working for him, that gospel of practicality. And he's obeyed all the things. So the gospel of morality, he's, he's got that down. And the gospel of prosperity, clearly God's on his side and blessing him. So, so what in the world are we even talking about here? If, if, if he's like a camel going through an eye of a needle, if it's that difficult for him to get into the kingdom of God, then, then we're out of luck. Like we got squat. Here's Peter and all the other disciples standing there going like, I'm a fisherman. I got a salty mouth. I got no money and I'm broke and busted. James and John, we talked about them last week. They weren't called the sons of thunder because they were really well-spoken and articulate and thought before they spoke. I mean, these guys are busting it. So look, if, if that guy can't get into the kingdom, then it's impossible for any, Who can even be saved, Jesus? And you can almost see Jesus' face. You can almost see a smile come across his lips. And he thinks, now you got it. Now you've got it. Keep reading. Because Jesus speaks some of the most ironically life-giving words in all of Scripture. Here's what he says. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Here's what Jesus says. To those that know that they can't do it. To those that know their own sin and shame well. To those who are far from God. To those who know kingdom riches are out of your reach. To those who have just had it with trusting in their own goodness or whatever. To those who know it's impossible for man to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, it's impossible for you, but with God, it's possible. While we were yet sinners, when we were far from him, when we trusted in things that weren't him, when we couldn't do it, when we were rendered powerless in our own sin, as Ephesians says, when we were dead in our trespasses, when we trusted in our own goodness to take the edge off of our conscience and, and just do moral th therapy to kind of keep us from that longing for the divine in our soul, God made the impossible possible by sending his son because of his grace and mercy, not because of anything you or I have done. He loved us with an everlasting love that made the impossible possible. This is the invitation of the gospel. This is it at the very, very core. It's not about commands that work. It's not about doing more good things. It's not about God showing up and going, I can make your life better. I can make you prosper. This is the core of the gospel saying, yes, God, I own my own badness. I'm a mess. Or you know what? 
I've done all these good things and I've put my trust in them and my church attendance and giving to the poor and teaching a Sunday school class and leading a Bible study. Yeah, I've done all that stuff. And I realize, God, that if I've put my trust in that, I'm telling you I don't need you and I don't want to do that anymore. I want to put my trust and faith in you and you alone. I want to tell you just in three minutes or less, this is the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. He loved you. He made you just how he wanted you. He didn't quit early and think, oh, that one's good enough. He loves you and he designed you just how you are. And he gave us commandments, commandments of grace to help us walk and, and do well and, and survive and and and. and put these rails around who we are. Why? Because he designed us. He knows how we work best. And we said to him, I'm not interested. I don't want that stuff. And look, if you're sitting in this place and you're like, you know what? I don't feel like I've ever done that to God. That's, I mean, that's your prerogative. I, I would just tell you that that's kind of the prerequisite for the gospel. <laughs> That's kind of the prerequisite for saying yes to Jesus and accepting his invitation is saying, yeah, I have walked away and I've busted my life up. I look at the trail of things that I've done. I look at my heart motivation. I don't want anybody to hook my heart and my mind up on a screen for all my friends and family and spouse to see. I'm busted, I'm broken, and I need something. And God says, yes, that's correct, and you can't do anything to fix that. Not your goodness, not your morality, not your money, not your prosperity, not your influence. Nothing can fix that. So because I loved you and because I, I wanted to pour out grace and mercy because who I am in my character, God says, not because of anything you've done. He didn't look down from heaven and go, man, you know, angels, Michael, Gabriel, look at these guys. They're amazing. I mean, they're making great decisions. We got to do something about this, you know. I, I need them. I, I, you know, that's, yes, that's what. He called angels over, you know, hypothetically speaking here, and said, man, they're, they're really messed up. And angels go, yeah, we've been there. Bad. And God says, but you know what? I love them too much. I love them too much to let them wallow in it. I love them too much to let them continue as a walking dead person. I'm going to renew their spirit. I'm going to call them to myself. And in order to take care of the penalty that they have earned by their rebellion, take care of the penalty that they've earned by trusting even in their own goodness, I'm going to send my son to take that penalty on a cross, to die the death that they were meant to die, to live the life that they should have lived and didn't, so that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, could become sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. So here's what he's saying. Stop trusting in your own goodness. Stop, start trusting in the goodness of Jesus and the righteousness of God. If you've never done that, that is the invitation of the gospel. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to it here in a minute, but until then, just a couple of practical applications when we talk about the gospel of grace. First is this. It should change the way we worship. The gospel of grace 
knowing that we were once dead in our trespasses and, and apart from God, knowing uh, what, what we look like as desperate sinners in need of the saving grace of God, knowing that we were once far from him and he came to reconcile us to himself, it should change the way we worship. It's funny to me, I always, you know, I, you know people come into church sometimes and they, t- they tell me after the fact, oh, worship was really good today, it was really good. Or they say, oh, worship was not good. I'm like, is that, is that what we're here to do? <laughs> is that what we're here to do? To evaluate? If, if we believe that we were once dead in our trespasses, when we come to corporate worship, he has made us alive in Christ. It should be tears flowing and voices raised and going, I can't even get these words out because the grace of God is so amazing. If we've owned our own badness, that's what comes forth. I was driving yesterday on the, on the 407 out towards Detroit. Don't ask me why um, I went to Detroit. We have friends that live there. I don't know why they live there. Have you been to Detroit? Yeah. Look, look at a couple pictures. You'll be cool. All right. So but we went out to visit friends because we love our friends. So we're driving out the 407, and Amy and I were talking about how great the weather is. You know, did you go outside yesterday, Anybody? Go outside. Yeah, the clouds are awesome, and it was nice. The weather was beautiful, and the sun was out, and the sky was blue. We were talking about, gosh, this is so nice. The weather is so great. It's wonderful. It's lovely. What a great day God has given to us. And we looked at the temperature, and it was 15 degrees. Now, I moved here from Phoenix, Arizona about 19 months ago. And in Phoenix, 15 degrees, people are going out to woodshed. To get the fireplace going, they're collecting canned goods to put in their basement just in case the world is coming to an end so they can go down there and hunker down, you know, while kind of Armageddon takes place because 15 degrees is freezing. But we moved here 19 months ago from Phoenix, Arizona and endured the worst winter on record in 2013, 2014 and just came out of the coldest February on record. Anybody know that? Coldest February on record. So now 60 degrees is like, man, it is, it's downright balmy outside, isn't it? <laughs> it's horrible. Here's why. It, it's because we've endured such a long winter and we've endured such a cold February that, that spring seems so much sweeter after a long winter, doesn't it? The, the blossoms and the trees and the weather, it just seems so much sweeter. Listen. When you understand the depth of your own depravity, when you understand your own badness, you understand you can't trust in your goodness, when you come out of the long winter called deadness in your soul, the grace of God seems far sweeter, far more amazing. And that should change the way we worship, if you get it. Number two, it should change the way we preach should change the way we preach. And I say we as if you're preaching right now, okay? This is more for me, not for you. Some of you are ministry leaders. Some of you actually preach in places. I see a couple of friends that are preaching in different places. This should change the way that we preach. Let's stop with the, you know, six practical ways that you can do this and four steps to that. And we do some of that stuff around here because the Bible does offer practical suggestions. But please, and I beg of you, when you share the good news about Jesus, not if, when. Let me, hear, let me say that again. Not if, when. When, when you share the good news about Jesus with your friends, please, I beg of you, do not tell them that God came to make their life better. Don't. 
Because it's not the gospel. Just don't bother. Invite them here. We'll talk about the gospel. Please, please don't tell them that God came to kind of prosper them. Please, please, for the love of all that's good and holy, please do not tell them that God wants to make them more moral. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is this. God came to restore a broken relationship and to pour out favor on you that you never deserve. He came to make you new. He came to make you a child of his. He came to adopt you into his kingdom. As Jesus would say himself, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to make you more moral or to make your life better. It should change the way we preach. Finally, it's the last one and we'll be done. We'll close with the song. It should change the way we respond. It should change the way we respond to God in the depths of our soul and just with our lives lived in reflection of the gospel. It should change. The the, the response of the gospel is not, or the response to the gospel is not, yeah, yeah, my life's pretty good and I'd like to add a little Jesus to it to see if it could get better. Or yeah, I've done all the right things, just like the rich young ruler. I've got one more thing to do. I'm taking my Christianity to the next level, buddy. That's not the response of the gospel. The response of the gospel is this. Oh, God, I need you. I'm broken. As your book, Revelation, would say, I am poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. That's straight from the scripture, by the way. I'm a desperate sinner in need of your grace, and I'm far from you. And so, oh God, I just fall upon your grace, and I'm so grateful that your grace doesn't leave me in my sin, that your grace doesn't leave me even neutral, that your grace restores me into a relationship with you. Your grace makes me a son or a daughter to you, a co-heir with Christ even. Your grace gives me all I need for life and godliness. Your grace, it means that you've got a plan for me. You've got good things in store for me. Your grace means that I can go to you with confidence and I can come into your throne room knowing that my conscience is already sprinkled and clear I don't need the gospel of morality. I don't need to do more good things to get in your good graces. You've already poured out your grace on me. It's not anything else that I can do because you've already done it all. And so now, God, I live a life that is obedient to you because I know you are a good and gracious king, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But I don't obey because, or I don't, I'm not accepted because I obey. I obey because I'm already accepted. That's the response. That's the response. And some of you, like I said, have maybe been in church for a while. Maybe you thought you were a Christian. Maybe you thought you were a Christian because you're doing good things and you're voting for the right people and you're giving you know, money to the poor or whatever. You're not. At least not for that reason you're not. A Christian, a Christ follower, someone who inherits kingdom riches and will spend eternity with Christ is someone who has completely fallen on the grace of God. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him now. So would you pray with me? I know that there's someone in this room maybe more than one, 
and you know you've been trusting in your own goodness, your own morality, the things that you've done to impress God. And in the depths of your soul, in your heart, in your subconscious, in the back of your mind, the front of your mind, whatever, you wonder, where am I going to go when I die? I mean, I know where I'm going to go to church every Sunday. I know that I'm going to be good to people and be kind to people and try to be a nice person and, you know, whatever. But that's not cutting it anymore. It hasn't taken the edge off. There's still that lurking, that pain, that ache, that something that tells me it's not going to cut it. I know there's somebody like that here. So I wanted to invite you this morning to pray a prayer, something like this. God, I think I've thought I was a Christian. I think, you know, because I've been going to church and because I've been trying to live a good life to the best of my ability, you know, maybe I've even volunteered and, you know, whatever. You know, I, I've been doing that, but, but uh, yeah, something hit me today. And, and I just, I'm not sure that I've got eternal life. And I think it's because I've been trusting in my own goodness. God, I've never had a moment with you where I've said, uh, I'm a sinner and I'm desperately in need of your grace. So God, I own that today for the first time. I trust in you and in you alone. Nothing about me, everything about you. I fall on your grace. I accept the penalty that Jesus paid for me on the cross, what he did, the sacrifice that he made, that he took my sin upon himself and he's given his righteousness to me. He's given his goodness to me so I don't have to have any goodness of my own. But God, in response, I want to live a life where you're the king and you're the Lord and you're the master and the teacher and the director because you are good and I know you've got good things for me. You know what, if, if you would just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed and just don't look around because this is a kind of a private moment. I, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, if you said, you know what, I thought I was a Christian before, but if that's what a Christian is, that's not me. And I, I want to know the grace of God. And I prayed that prayer just now. Would you just slip your hand up for me? I just want to see you. Yep, 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 yep. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for your courage. God, I pray first and foremost that the folks who just raised their hand would know that they are assured of kingdom riches, that the day that they die, be it today or 80 years from now, you will take them home to be with you. You have prepared a place for them. Your grace is sufficient for them. God, please, please, I just beg of you that they would have a deep assurance of their life in you because of your grace and your goodness and your kindness, and your mercy. God, now as we all together, uh, those maybe who don't know you, those who, um, those who believe in you and walk with you, God, as we respond now in worship, I pray that you would draw us near to yourself. I pray that you would call out of us praises that you deserve. I pray that we would reflect on how far we were from you, so far that even our own goodness was not gonna get us back with you. And yet you, because of your grace, sent your son to rescue us and redeem us and call us to yourself. We worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.